Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delp and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to the Cloudcast. Uh, we're coming to you live from the massive studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is Aaron, and uh, Brian is here this week as well. How you doing, Brian? I'm good, man. How are you? How are you? Good, 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 good. So I, I have to ask the question. Um, are you ready for the run this weekend? Uh, yeah, I am. I, I mean, you know, as, like we always say, as ready as we're going to be. Um, unfortunately, I don't know that the weather is going to cooperate. It looks like it's, it's like 65 here today. I think it's supposed to be about 25 or 30 on Saturday, which uh, is, is not, <laughs> not fun for running. Uh, but, but the good news is uh, we, are, we are doing really well on, on donations. So I think we are, we're pretty close to our – we had a number of around $4,000. We're getting sort of close to that or very close to that. So – Thank you to everybody so far who's who's made a donation, big and small, and uh, you know we, we can't thank you guys enough. And it's uh, it's a pretty awesome feeling every year to be able to go and, and make that big contribution to the hospital for those kids. Yeah, absolutely. And so for those that maybe don't know exactly what we're talking about, this is the Krispy Kreme Challenge here in Raleigh, North Carolina. We we do it every year for the podcast. This is our fifth year doing it, actually raising money. And um, as of right now, we're, we're very close to the goal. But yeah, if, if you are interested in a donation, go out to thecloudcast.net. And uh, look in the upper right-hand corner, you will see um, a little uh, running guy with the donut head. And just click on that, and it'll take you over to our uh, fundraising page, and you can make a direct donation there. Um, so, yes, uh, certainly huge, huge thank you to the community, as always. Uh, it's always grateful to to see the support over the years. And it's it's an amazing um, uh, charitable organization, and, and we're super happy to be doing it. And, yeah, although it is going to be cold, at least it's better than the one year it was like – 20 degrees and sleeting yeah um yeah, at least yeah. it'll, it'll be like 20 degrees and just cold right, right. <laughs> at so least i hope it'll be it'll be dry <laughs> knock on wood so hey listen man exactly. um you know we uh we we get a chance a lot to talk to technologists and and uh you know we dig into stuff and and then you know every once in a while we we sort of say you know it's it's important to follow the money so today's show is going to be very cool we're going to get to follow the money and and see what 2017 is going to look like Absolutely. Absolutely. So today we have uh, Scott Rainey. Scott is with uh, Redpoint Venture Capital. And Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, So we always love talking to to Venture Capital uh, and their perspective on on the market. And tell us a little bit, first of all, about yourself and then a little bit of your current areas of focus and how you got into all of this. Yeah, um, sounds great. Uh, so my name is Scott Rainey, as you said, and I'm a general partner here with Redpoint Ventures. I've been at Redpoint now for about 15 years, so for for some time, and I've seen a, a few venture cycles and a few areas of, of interest kind of emerge and pop up and decline over time. But where I spend most of my time is in cloud and cloud infrastructure. So that ranges all the way from the application tier with SaaS companies down to open source infrastructure software. Uh, and I started my career as an engineer. I worked at a couple startups, moved through and spent some time at uh, Bain and uh, ended up here at Redpoint in the early 2000s. Yeah, no, and, it, and it's awesome. I, we, uh, you, um, you and I have, have spoken some in the past. Uh, we always enjoy when we talk to, to technology companies, you know, where uh, the founders and the early use cases were things that in a lot of cases, you know, were they were doing something else. They found a problem. They, they, they sort of built some tools. They turned it into a company. Um, you've got a bunch of background having done 
software development and some other, you know, having been in startups, having been, you know, founder, like talk about just how important that is as opposed to just being, you know, kind of a, a business school grad and, and looking at numbers. I mean, how, how critical is it that, that you've, you know, you've, you've got the scars, you've got the battle wounds to say, Hey, I, I realize, you know, how to evaluate your technology, but also just like what, it, what it means to go through the ups and downs of starting a company. Yeah. I mean, I think to be a good venture capitalist, but I think in general to be, to be anyone that's going to be involved in technology, you have to have a lot of empathy because starting a company is, you know, probably one of the hardest things you can possibly imagine doing. And being a founder of one of those companies, you know, it, it is a it is a job that is full of you know many ups and downs, but far more downs typically than ups. And and there are times uh, during that journey where it's not obvious that you're going to be able to make it. And so, you know, as an investor, as a venture guy, I spent a lot of time trying to put myself in their shoes. Remember what it was like to be at a startup that was undercapitalized, under resourced, uh, trying to fight large incumbents and um, and 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 you know, with that empathy comes, I think, understanding and and the ability to actually then make contributions and and help guide them and steer them in the right way. And so, yeah, it's invaluable to me. It's invaluable, you know, both from that empathy standpoint, but also the practical knowledge and and and, and point of view that I have based on firsthand experience. That hopefully, at some point, I can help these companies apply and, and make a difference. So. Yeah. So we. Um we, we've known some folks uh, at, at Redpoint, some of your some of your colleagues and, and former colleagues. And this this past November, we were at uh, at KubeCon. We were at the uh, Cloud Native Computing Foundation uh, KubeCon event in Seattle. And Dan Kahn, who's the um, who runs the you know runs the CNCF, uh, you know, was sort of laying out what the industry looks like, sort of trends, and, and he threw up this this really interesting dichotomy, uh, you know, sort of. Uh, map of what the the cloud native landscape looks like, and it was a, a partnership that that Redpoint has done with the CNCF. Give us a sense of like, you know, what? How do you guys look at this marketplace? Like you said, um, you know, cloud infrastructure can mean everything from from SaaS services to you know open source projects. But give us a sense of how you guys built out this this taxonomy, and also you know, how you might, you know, how people might look at this and, and use this type of, of tool or, or sort of map of what's going on. Sure. Well, um, this started with a uh, former colleague of mine, Lenny Proust, who's now with Amplify Partners, who uh, he and I were looking at lots of companies that were trying to build the infrastructure required to build cloud native applications. And, you know, um, very, very quickly, lots of companies and lots of open source projects were emerging and we were finding it difficult sometimes to really understand how all these things were playing together. And so we decided to take a step back and think about a taxonomy that would make sense uh, and and started to bucket all these companies and open source projects we were seeing into this taxonomy and, and, and the hope of actually being able to make some sense of it. And, it. and it started to make a lot of sense to us. And we reached out to uh, Alexis, who's on the talk of the CNCF, who who you know the, the taxonomy resonated with and connected us with Dan and and you know that that was the beginning of that relationship and excited to say that we've got a lot of really cool things that are in the works for that taxonomy that are that are coming up and we'll be talking more about that over the next month or two. But what we hope this taxonomy does is provides people with you know that ten thousand foot view of the space and to see where all the innovation, all the activities happening. Um, it's certainly I think. For a practitioner, it can be useful in terms of just understanding the technologies that are out there. For an entrepreneur, it can be useful just in terms of making sure you have a, a full view of what the competitive landscape looks like, or at the very least, 
you know, sense for the kinds of uh, projects and companies that you should be working with to help uh, help deliver your vision. So, you know, it's uh, it, it'll be a, an ongoing piece of work. That's the one thing that I think that we can all take away from this space. It's moving and changing very, very quickly, and there's lots of activity. And so, this is going to be a living, breathing uh, project that we hope will um, will you know shed some light onto all the developments that are, that are underway here. Yeah, and and Scott, we we'll put a link to it in the show notes. It, it it's actually really really fascinating. I love it. Um, one of the things I would say though as well is is many of the things on that landscape they're either open source projects or, or companies that are commercializing some aspects of of open source projects. And we've heard various theories, and and we've talked a lot about it on this show in the past of what exactly those business models look like and and what's successful and what isn't and so i'm very curious how do you advise companies specifically in this space yeah how to build big open source companies is that the, is that the <laughs> profitable right. you know yeah. billion dollar yeah, evaluated right <laughs> yeah and I, I you know i talked to you guys about this before but i i you know open source has been venture capital's best friend and worst enemy all at the same time and our best friend in the sense that without open source, the cost of building uh, companies would be would be you know prohibitively uh, high and would make it very difficult for innovation to happen at the rate that it's happening. On the other hand, kind of that pace of innovation is happening so fast that open source projects continue to disrupt other open source projects, and you know it's hard to keep up with everything. Um, and so, yeah, it is it is absolutely a challenge for us as we look at this landscape to figure out, you know, which of these open source projects and the companies associated with them have a chance to be big. Um, I could, you know, a few observations. I would say that, you know, traditional service and support models and open core models, I think, have been proven to be at this point in time very, very difficult to build. And so we are discouraging entrepreneurs as much as possible. And this is these are universal kind of blanket statements. But you we all know that there are exceptions to every rule. But you know, generally those models are, are very difficult. So what we're seeing more of uh, are really two models that have emerged. One are, are folks that are that are viewing the enterprise products they build on top of the open source projects that they're working on as applications. And by that meaning, they deliver end-to-end solutions. They make it very easy for people to embrace this technology, um, but also to manage it on an ongoing basis. And they're pushing up the stack. They're innovating higher and higher up the stack and getting closer and closer to end users. So um, that is certainly one you know, big takeaway and observation for us in terms of the companies that have had the most success. And uh, the other model that's really emerging, a lot of these companies are, are thinking about maybe we should be operating and running this open source as a service. So we will uh, take this open source and manage it and run it better than uh, individual companies can. And this makes the most sense in projects that are you know, honestly, um, complicated, you know, difficult to get up and running, difficult to, to manage, difficult to scale. And so, uh, you know, this model is a is a fairly new one. I'd say it's it's emerged over the last couple of years, but there's a handful of companies that are showing a lot of promise here. Um, you know, we have one in a company called Platform 9, but there are other companies like uh, Databricks, what they're doing with Spark, and, um, you know, a few others that are out there doing some compelling things in terms of offering open source as a service. So, I think the one takeaway would be it is this space will continue to evolve. The models that make sense to try to build businesses, I think, will continue to be fine-tuned. Um, there is no one right answer, but uh, I think the one thing we know is uh, there will be constant change and disruption in this market. Yeah. So let's talk about let's talk about change a little bit, just kind of in general. Um, 
you know, things are, things move, things move fast. Uh, I think they, they probably, you know, between, between open source and, and what goes on in public cloud, things are probably moving faster than, than they had before. Um, you know, in, in the context of, of building a business, um, like how do you, you know, how, how have things shifted for you, you know, just even over the last three or four years in terms of trying to help guide companies to understand, uh, you know, how to deal with that first ramp up where you go from, you know, a hundred users to, I don't know, a hundred thousand users, uh, you know, when to make investments around sales and marketing, uh, you know, when to be thinking about, I don't know, uh, valuation rounds and, and all that. Like, how do you, how have things changed now that, that the environment around them is going so much faster and, and where you guys get involved from a, from a venture perspective? So, yeah, and infrastructure generally, let's just, maybe we'll talk about that. Yeah, there are, um, it's a tremendous time. It's an incredibly exciting time because, as you and I uh, both know, um, there are two really big trends that are underway that are disrupting the space pretty fundamentally. One is uh, the introduction of cloud and cloud computing, in particular public cloud, and what that means. And the second is you know, this idea of cloud-native computing, the idea of taking the, the, the infrastructure that the, you know, the Googles and the Facebooks uh, of the world have created and actually – you know, exposing those to traditional enterprises and helping them think about how they recreate uh, applications in a way that makes them much more flexible uh, and scalable going forward. And those two things have come together to create a really compelling and interesting opportunity set. On the other hand, uh, you know, when you couple public cloud with with open source, those are two massive kind of commoditizing waves that are that are really making it challenging to think about how to build really really big companies. I and mean, we spend a lot of time thinking about how do we build the next VMware, you know, and, and something of that scale and size. And honestly, it's, it's, it's challenging um, and a vacuum to wrap your head around how that, how that happens. But in terms of the kinds of things that we look for, I think one of the things that's happening now is that, you know, a handful of people have the opportunity to create really interesting and compelling open source projects. And so what we are doing is, um, as venture capitalists, is looking for those projects that have meaningful traction. And the definition of meaningful traction has changed. I mean, we are looking for projects now that, that are reaching, you know, really impressive scale because I think that's more possible now than ever without having raised significant dollars. And we are, um, when we see that, we recognize that these guys are, or women are on the forefront of you know, kind of pushing the envelope in terms of whatever area that they're in. And um, at that point in time, that's when we help, we like to work with those companies, that, those projects to help turn them into products. And, um, and, you know, we spent a lot of time thinking about what's the best way to package this and how do we think about what I had talked about earlier in this conversation around, you know, ultimately what you want to, what you want to sell, um, and, you know, pushing them to think about things in terms of applications and maybe services. Um, and once you've done that kind of privatization, taking that out to market and getting some early customer feedback and really then trying to demonstrate some, some form of product market fit, try to get a few people that, few buyers that will look at this and say, you know, this, this makes sense. And, and once you get that early traction, that's the point at which time we, we work with the, the companies to actually invest and go to market to, to make investments in building out um, sales and marketing teams, because, you know, without a doubt, the most expensive part of building any one of these companies is going to be the investment you make in sales and marketing. And so, you know, we like to have some demo, some demonstration of product market fit before, you know, the, these companies start to make big investments there, um, you know, quite often because, frankly, it takes a little bit of time 
to get the sales and marketing engine right. There, you know, often you make a, a bad hire or two, or you need to think about positioning, or you pursue the wrong types of buyers, or whatever the case might be. And and you know, those are expensive experiments. And so we we want to remove as many unknowns as possible before you make those big investments. And then you know, the the kind of you asked about the financing trajectory that. You know, that's kind of an independent phenomenon. It, it really, you know, there are no hard and fast rules as to when it makes sense for companies to raise money and when it makes sense um, for, you know, how to think about valuations. But, you know, generally, Series A is when you're, you're, you're starting to work on that product market fit. Series B is when you've, you've got a, a, some initial demonstration of product market fit and are ready to invest in sales and marketing. And Series C and beyond is when you're, you know, pouring the gas on the fire to, to, to grow this and to make it as big as you possibly can. Yeah. And and Scott, so you mentioned there a couple different things. So so of course product market fit, and then you also mentioned commoditization through either open source or public cloud. And yeah. so let's take one of your portfolio companies, Twilio, as an example. Mm-hmm. They were highlighted at AWS reInvent, um, and Brian and I have had kind of a running joke for a couple years now of um, AWS often has this idea of you get a really, really big partner in their ecosystem, and then they create a service that overlaps. And uh, you know, it, it initially runs on that platform, but they eventually may commoditize or, or potentially take out some of that product over time. And, and so how does someone like Twilio, for instance worry about um, th- like that combination of product market fit versus the, the commoditization that tends to happen, especially in something as competitive as an AWS space? Yeah. So let's set aside Twilio for a second. And let's talk more generally about this because it's, it's clearly something we spend a lot of time thinking about. Anytime we're talking to a company that is offering some kind of service via the cloud, you know, the immediate thing that we think about as well, you know, isn't Amazon going to do this, right? And, you know, uh, one observation. So first of all, I, I, there's, no, there's, there's no company that I admire more than Amazon. I mean, I think what they've done with AWS is, is pretty extraordinary. And I've been going to reInvent since the first one. And, you know, I've been, everyone, I was just struck by just how much momentum and how much progress they've made in terms of both product and commercial adoption. And I remember going two years ago, uh, leaving thinking I, I, I could not be more excited about what the public cloud means for IT and the IT landscape going forward. I remember leaving this year, though, thinking, oh, my God, Amazon is a juggernaut and they're going to run over everybody and everything. And, you know, what do we do? Right. And um, and, I, you know, I think that's a testament that everything that everything that Amazon's done. Um, I would say, you know, but but I would say that one of the things that I think Amazon, I mean, Amazon and AWS has struggled with a little bit are the services that had existed a little bit higher up the stack. As you move away from storage and compute, for instance, and you move more towards things that, that are that are at the higher level, I think that, they're, that those services have tended to be pretty rudimentary. And so they're good enough for somebody that's playing around, but maybe not great for somebody that's looking for a, um, a real long-term solution. And um, you know, in the case of Twilio, you know, the the complexity and surface area of the stuff that Twilio has built in terms of just all the capabilities that they've enabled is really, really difficult to replicate unless you're focused on it like a laser beam. And, you know, this is just one of a broad portfolio of products or services that an Amazon might offer. And as a result, I, you know, I don't think in the end that they're going to have as broad and compelling a set of capabilities and features 
for that particular use case is Twilio Will. And as a result, I think most commercial deployments, most large to personal uh, commercial deployments will end up on top of the Twilio platform. And I, and, and I think that that is a, you know, that's an interesting um, example because I, I feel that way about a number of other areas that, that you know, AWS will get into. And at some level, I view the work that AWS is being, you know, is, is being really positive or beneficial for somebody like a Twilio because when they offer these higher level services, they, they expose the developers that are on the AWS platform to the capabilities that are possible to be, um, uh, to be derived from the cloud. And um, people will start to use those services, and then very quickly they'll start to say, well, I need more features, I need more capabilities, and then they'll find their way to companies like Twilio. And so at some level, you know, it's, it's, it's great lead gen. And as a result, you know, a Twilio and an Amazon, they're very, very good friends because, because of that symbiotic relationship there. And, you know, Amazon wants people to build as much as they possibly can on top of their compute and storage um, stratas. And, and when you enable, when there are companies like Twilio they can partner with, they can enable rich communications functionality, um, that'll just drive more workloads on the AWS. So... Yeah. And well, and I, and I think you, you know, we, we talked about product market fit and some of those, I think the other thing um, that you highlight and, uh, you know, another one of your portfolio companies is HashiCorp. We've had Mitchell on a, a couple of times is, you know, the, the companies that and, and it's a small group that do this, do it well, but that also focus on just just a tremendous sort of user experience that, you know, like people talk about those companies, you know, in such glowing ways that. The, the, the amount of friction I think they think about moving away from that technology is so big. They don't think about it as so much a commodity. They think about, you know, th- how well they, they interact with them is, you know, is as big as, as anything else. And so I think, you know, that, that piece of it as well is, is if, you know, your offering is, you know, it's decent. Yes, it's feature rich, but people don't talk about it glowingly. Um, those are the ones I think that also become maybe a little more susceptible to just being commoditized if, if the price drops down and, and they can get a you know commodity service. I think you know you, you've also got to find people that have that passion about creating a great experience for you know a developer, uh, you know somebody in that supply chain that's going to use the service. So you know I've had a lot of su- success as an investor, but a lot of fortune of working with people. Companies like Heroku and Twilio and uh, Stripe and HashiCorp, all products, all companies which have created products that developers just love. And, you know, there's an ethos within each of the, every one of those companies, which is, you know, we're all about winning the hearts and minds of developers and building products that will delight them. And um, it's not about, you know, checklists. It's not about features and capabilities. It's, it's truly about you know, just wanting to put a smile on the face of every one of the end users of these products. And so um, to me, if you're going to try to compete against the public cloud vendors for specific capabilities, you know, you need to be partnering with and finding um, um, people that are extraordinarily passionate about delivering highly differentiated experiences. So, yeah, I guess I'd say one, one other thing, which is just to answer, you know, back to the original question too, which is, I do think a lot of people right now, you know, AWS has a tremendous market share and is, you know, a remarkable platform to build on top of. But there are increasingly folks that are worried about things like lock-in and are spending a lot of time making sure that whatever they're doing today doesn't, you know, lock them into one particular platform. And the higher you go up the stack, the less, um, the, the more proprietary the 
these services become at some level, right? And so what I, I think is happening to a certain extent too is people are looking they don't want to. They don't want a single thread on one particular public cloud vendor for their their full stack of solutions. And you know, um, and I, I think that's one of the other reasons why there there exists opportunities for independent companies to be built here. Yeah, Scott, that makes great sense. And let me ask you this then too, because this kind of goes to this <clears throat> this model too of the, the embracing the developers um, and open source, and and really how do you kind of grow and get traction, and how can you do that so quickly? But we've also had uh, many folks uh, on, on the show in the past, and we've talked about this concept of developers really help um, startups grow into that critical mass very quickly and, and go much faster than they've ever been able to before. But at the same time then, how do you in, uh, really advise them of, okay, once you get developer hearts and minds, how do you reach up into the business and kind of get folks, you know, quite honestly, with pocketbooks at times um, and, and and checkbooks to start writing checks? Because sometimes what we found in our in, in the past in our experience is the developers get the mind share, but they don't always necessarily have the budgets to follow through yeah. on it. And so, when you're advising companies, what do you tell them when it comes to that aspect of the relationship? So I've um the way that I look at it is that we're selling through developers, not to developers. Um, and, and many of these, uh, projects that we've talked about and that, you know, ultimately what you have to be doing is solving a business problem. It's not just about, um, you know, um, developer productivity or, you know, or, you know, even, um, some of the aspects around, um, developer collaboration and things like that. There, there needs to be a business problem you solve that at some point some executive uses strategic. And, you know, um, if you look at, you know, what, for instance, a HashiCorp is doing today and developing a lot of love within the developer ecosystem, but, you know, ultimately is solving some really core problems that are going to be pervasive for anyone or any enterprise that's thinking about how they think about deploying applications to the cloud more generally, how you deploy and run and secure those applications. You know, those are core strategic problems that that the folks that are at the the application architecture group and others are going to be looking at and saying, you know, we need to we need to um, we need to have those problems solved. And as a result, you know, and those those folks tend to have the budget. Um, and so, it's really important to, to 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 frame everything you're doing in terms of kind of eventually rolling it up and solving a business problem, which could be, you know, in the case of some of these companies, making these businesses more agile. Um, and then capable capable of moving more quickly, which is obviously just something that just about every enterprise wants to be able to do today. And and uh, it's a it's a you know it's a subtle mind shift in terms of like kind of the historical um, uh, developer tools market, which has traditionally been one that is difficult to build uh, big businesses in. Although I think that's changed because the number of developers has gotten so much larger, and so you know you've got companies like Atlassian and GitHub and others that are building you know, very significant businesses, solving problems specifically for developers. But for us, if you can abstract it up and think about how you build products that ultimately help companies solve business problems and make them more nimble, there will be budget. Yeah. Let, let me ask you one last question, Scott, because I know you've, you've got a lot, you've got a lot going on. Um, you know, over the last couple of weeks, we've got a, we've got a new administration here in the United States and, and, you know, kind of regardless of people's, uh, political perspective, how much does, does a big change like that? Um, how much do you sit down with your portfolio companies and, 
and try and you know forecast what what might come or you know how, how much does the political landscape play into you know how you advise these guys or timelines or, or things like that yeah let's set aside the politics sure absolutely <laughs> yep but 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 i think just generally there are so many unknowns in terms of building you know what it takes to build these companies that i i think what we tend to do is just focus on ultimately the mission for the company and making sure the company's doing what's right for them at that stage in their development and we, you know, we don't spend a lot of time trying to predict the future and, you know, what might happen um, with the, the macro environment, the macro, you know, the economy or you know, the regulatory environment or any of those types of things. What we we do is we just try to help the companies master the things that are within their control and make smart decisions and obviously make decisions that that um understand that circumstances, the macro environment can change. And so don't put yourself in a position where if the macro environment changes, you will, you know, threaten the, the, um, you know, the, the solvency or the legitimacy of the business, um, you know, give yourself the ability to kind of have some wiggle room just in case things, things do involve. And we're probably more sensitive to that in times when there's a lot of upheaval and unrest, um, and, you know, try to make sure companies provide themselves the ability to, have the room to to maneuver um, should things change, but you know I think by and large I, I got to say um, again setting aside politics I'm really at this point in time pretty bullish about the opportunity set and the opportunities that are available to the companies that we're investing in and the and the companies at large in the space I think it's it's just we're on the front end we still are on the front end of these kind of inexorable changes and trends that are going to afford lots of opportunity and so. You know, I, you know, for any anyone that's thinking about starting a company out there um, and concerned about what, you know, uh, a Trump presidency might mean for the ability for a startup to get off the ground and to run or whatever the case might be, you know, I would just encourage you to say if you believe in what you're doing and and in the the, the technology you're developing, then by all means, you know, get going, get, start this company and. Get moving forward because there are really amazing opportunities out there for you right now. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and uh, like you said, it's 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 always about sort of staying focused on on the core core things you're trying to do and, and focus on your markets. And um, well, listen, uh, Scott, we, uh, we we've loved the conversation. I know we've we've covered a whole bunch of different things. Hopefully, uh, we can get you back on at some point later in the year, and we'll kind of you know see what's what's going on in, around things. What's the best way if if people want to reach out and uh, you know just engage with you, um, you know, pick your brain, see what what uh, what red points focused on things like that. Yeah, I, there's a, a few ways. Uh, one is uh, you can follow me or reach me on Twitter at srainy.com, S-R-A-N-E-Y. Um, you can reach me at srainy at redpoint.com if you'd like to email me. And um, and check us out on Memory Leak, our, our blog that's on uh, Medium on Memory Leak, which talks about all these things related to cloud and cloud native and software development. And then um, finally, the Redpoint blog at redpoint.com slash blog. Very cool. Well, listen, uh, I think we're going to wrap that up. Aaron, you want to, uh, you want to take us home? Yeah, absolutely. Scott, thank you very much for your time this week. And, uh, on behalf of Brian and myself, thanks for listening this week and, uh, wish us good luck, uh, running this weekend and, uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to the Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 